the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And we've done lots of that this year. This is the last Brexit Breakdown podcast of the year and probably the first one in which we absolutely know that Brexit is going to happen, courtesy of last week's election result. So to discuss that election and what happens now, not just in terms of Brexit, but in terms of politics more widely. But as we saw at the election, the two are not necessarily easily disentangled. I was joined by Jill Rutter, Senior Research Fellow from the UK and Changing Europe, by Raphael Baer, columnist at The Guardian, and uh, once again by Asa Bennett, Brexit Commissioning Editor at The Telegraph. Um, We discussed, well, all sorts, to be honest, lots of very informed chat, Come back at the end for some uh, less informed chat from me and some information about the competition when you can win a limited edition Brexit breakdown mug. But to start off, I asked Jill the very simple question, what just happened? What happened was that the Conservatives won a bigger victory than uh, most people thought was possible, I think, uh, to sum it up lots of talk before about whether they'd actually managed to get the red wall to crumble and come into their camp and they pulled that off quite remarkably and actually I think it shows also that you can get away with not really engaging with the issues having a manifesto that says extraordinarily little and just sticking ruthlessly to the message so I know sort of Tory strategists event we had the other day someone who worked with Theresa May said Basically, Boris Johnson was running the campaign. Theresa May tried to run in 2017, was knocked off course by deciding to stuff her manifesto full of things and actually being a less good public performer than Boris Johnson. But it does show that you know, these tactics can win, whether we're happy that those sorts of tactics win our election is a different issue, but, but definitely succeeded this time round. You mentioned tactics. You haven't mentioned the B word. Wasn't this a Brexit election? It was to an extent of Brexit elections, clearly Brexit, get Brexit done was, as we said, the only message that really cut through. But it was also, quite interestingly, a Corbyn election and other issues came up on this sort of inside track. So it was Brexit plus Corbyn plus concerns about the state of public services. But actually the competition there was who could plausibly offer to spend the most cash because both sides, I mean, one of the things I thought was most intriguing, it's usually quite difficult for governments to renew themselves in office. But Boris Johnson's huge triumph was to manage to run as a Conservative Prime Minister against the record of the Conservative government for the last nine years. Uh, He offered a sort of possibly more plausible end to austerity than the massive end to austerity being offered by the Labour Party programme. A lot of people seem to think they might like individual elements of that programme, but they were really worried that they didn't believe the Labour leadership's assurances that ordinary people, people below that top 5%, would actually be able to have all this bumps coming to them at zero pain. And I think that just undermined the credibility of the programme offer, as well as the sort of personality offer that Labour had. I mean, to what extent was it a Corbyn election and what extent was it a Brexit election? Well, it was both, obviously, but the Corbyn thing was absolutely huge. I mean, Jill mentioned the, the 2017 
election. And what was interesting about that campaign and the outcome where Labour did a lot better than many people expected was that it gave the Labour Party, and particularly some of the people around Jeremy Corbyn, a what turned out to be entirely false belief uh, that if you offered a very radical left a manifesto and could also rely on essentially liberal-minded Remainers to accept that the Labour Party was the only serious vehicle for stopping hard Tory Brexit, you could assemble a big enough coalition to at least get yourself to a hung parliament. And that turned out to be false um, if for two reasons. Uh, one is that in 2017, I think a lot of leave pro-Leave voters who also lived in areas where people have traditionally always voted Labour didn't seriously think that Brexit was in peril. They might have been a bit frustrated that it was taking longer than had been advertised, but they thought it would get done. Uh, and and so they and they were always a lot of those people were always looking for reasons not to vote Tory. Uh, Theresa May gave them a lot of those reasons in her manifesto, and so they sort of defaulted back to what they ordinarily do, which is vote Labour. Now the that was completely different this time around. Get Brexit done was a very powerful, salient message uh, for a lot of those people. And also, Jeremy Corbyn was still the candidate to be Labour uh, um, to be Prime Minister. Uh, and uh, at a very basic level of, of, sort of political campaign strategy, it's not a good idea to serve up to sceptical voters a meal they have already sent back to the kitchen once. Uh, particularly not just bringing it out cold, slathering, sort of um, overspending ketchup and saying, now you'll eat this, won't you? Uh, and so... Ultimately, the the sort of just everyone who went around the country visiting constituencies encountered this idea that people really, whatever else they knew about politics, they didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. They wanted a lot of people wanted to get Brexit done, and those two things interacted in a very important way, which is people looked at Corbyn and thought, as part of his general incompetence and cavilling, the Brexit position, the, the, the sort of weird ambivalence you'd had from Labour about Brexit for for the best part of two years fed the underlying view that this was not a man who should be trusted to run the country. Um, this is all great news for you, Asa. You're, you're, mm. you're still Brexit commissioning editor, is that the story? It, it seems so, and, uh, until I die, I'll okay. that. Um, so, this is fantastic for you. I would agree emphatically, doubly and triply ever so, that, um, you know, we've seen from a mile off, this whole thing was meant to be and going to be about a sort of Brexit election. I seem to remember consensus that fast emerged before the election even began was, Boris Johnson will fight a people versus parliament election and, you know, effectively on the mandate of this parliament's trying to stop me getting Brexit done. Hang on, did I just land on the Tory man, you know, the Tory pledge? You know, and everyone expected this. And yet then when he then premiered it, Labour seemed to have no response. You'd be on just to sort of faff around saying, well, as Jeremy Corbyn did, I'll get Brexit sorted. Hey, sort of aping the phrase. And the thing is that at every which way they fail to anticipate the questions that be asked of them. So, you know, and how they'd handle it. And so that's why it's not just a Brexit election, but just ultimately a leadership election in that. And so, you know, obviously their own real surprise has been the scale of the Tory win. I mean, that's um, fascinating. We've talked about what went wrong with Labour, but I mean, something must have gone right in the Tories between 2017 and 2019 to get mm. such a different result. And you suggest you've thrown leadership in the mix there. Yes. Boris Johnson ran away, hid in a fridge. That's not leadership. What changed for the better for the Tories between 2017 and 2019? It's interesting because obviously 2017, it is widely, and I'm sure we are, you know, remember in shorthand in the history books that, oh, yes, it was a write-off, car crash, disaster. Yet, in many ways, Theresa May's campaign was the test run. It was the first mm. tranche of inter-Labour heartlands, increasing the Tory vote mm. share by some, but not enough. Um, but then Boris Johnson was able to capitalise on the collapse in Labour share in those areas to then suddenly have this dramatic turnaround. So... In many ways, she's the unsung hero of this campaign. 
Um, but as for the, what is leadership, well, I suppose that the, the real thing we've appreciated then since then is you really, is there, isn't it the Alistair Campbell rule? Is that you, it, when you start repeating a slogan so much that voters are sick of hearing it, then they're starting to pay attention. Um, in the sense that Theresa May was trying to almost do get Brexit done, as a phrase, because um, you remember when she launched the election and gave this speech uh, outside Downing Street, which was characterised by the Daily Mail as crush the saboteurs, mm. you know, sort of, and at that point, as Raphael was alluding to earlier, you know, it was slightly sort of theoretical that they were actually going to mm. saboteur anything or sabotage because Labour had just voted to trigger Article 50. It did not seem so obvious that they were um, you know, in cahoots with John Burko and the Ramonas and to stop us. And so at this point, there had been the big clash in October. The big do or die dead in the ditch deadline was, you know, gone. And so it was much easier to construct in voters' minds that Labour was not getting this sorted. And they just made sure then not to have distracting arguments about social care and have conversations like that in the middle of a Brexit election, given that's the whole primary purpose of it. James, I think one of the interesting things is actually the Conservatives didn't do that much better than mm. in 2017. So their vote share went up by one and a bit percent. So that's not a dramatic change over that campaign. What delivered this big victory was the fragmentation of the opposition vote. We all think it was a disastrous night for the Liberal Democrats. In many ways, it was a disastrous night to end up with sort of one fewer MP than you had election 2017. But their vote share went up quite significantly. It went up you know, from seven to 11 odd percent. There were Brexit party votes in quite a lot of those Northern constituencies which we'll look and see where they came from. So, you know, it's that fragmentation that actually made quite a big difference to the Conservatives this time round. The seats that really make the, the, the Conservative majority mm. now, that is, some of the Labour votes get sort of laundered mm. off to yeah. Brexit Party, but ultimately that, yeah. that is, that still describes mm. a Labour to Tory mm. swing in place, yeah. albeit, I absolutely agree mm. with Asa here, built on uh, a, a small platform that was erected in 2017. Mm. But the, the, the other crucial thing about that difference between 2017 and 2019 and the May campaign versus the, the Johnson one uh, is that just as Labour thought they could somehow reenact 2017, the Tories were terrified of a reenactment mm. of 17 and therefore played a very, very safe. Mm. They deliberately, mm. actively didn't repeat the mm. same mistakes. Okay, you've triggered the Scotland bore, Claxon, because I am mm. a Scotland bore. And what you're suggesting there is that the Tories are quite clever and looked to 2017 and learnt from it. Whereas the Labour Party didn't even learn from 2015 in Scotland, where you had one side of a referendum voting for one party and the other side of the referendum voting for three parties. And not surprisingly, the one side that has one party to vote for wins all the seats. The extent to which it was, I thought, very underreported in the run-up and then during the campaign, the way Labour essentially did the maths thought, well, we're never going to win Scotland. We're going to need Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP. So let's basically abandon Labour unionism. Mm. I mean, it was an extraordinary po policy choice to, to make. You know, this is my constant refrain, that this happened. We had a referendum. You see what happens. And Westminster, as ever, was not paying attention to Scotland and could see all this playing out if they'd been paying attention to Scotland and basically listening to me for the last few years. But since we're talking about Scotland, let's sort of move on from what has happened to what happens next. The Constitution would appear to be the big issue, Jill, going forward. I think that's fair. Uh, clearly, there's going to be a war of attrition between Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon putting in her request for Section 30 powers to allow the Scottish government to hold a referendum at a time of their choosing. It's not clear quite how soon they'll want it. And that will be, uh, be a sort of running battle as we go through Brexit. Uh, and we'll see how far the Prime Minister holds that off. I mean, he's perfectly within his rights to say no. 
that politically does that become untenable a long way down the line, particularly with Holyrood elections and the uh, SNP do very well in that. He also, and interestingly today, the other sort of big constitutional news is the restarting of the power sharing talks in Northern Ireland. Might be hard to get that sort of settled this side of the publication of the inquiry on what went wrong with the renewable heat incentive. Something's been uh, been sort of on, in the in the sort of uh, on ice in the fridge since uh, since July when I think it was first due out. But we get that at some point. But I think both Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionists. It's a bit odd because there were some withdrawals and things like that to work out quite what happened in Northern Ireland. Saw their vote shares go down. Uh, we actually one of the really good things to come out of this election is we now have a much better representation of Northern Ireland voices at Westminster, because that's been one of the real problems in Westminster, that with the single and very admirable exception of Lady Sylvia Herman, a whole big swathe of Northern Ireland opinion have had no voice in Westminster uh, because of Sinn Féin abstentionism since 2017. Northern Ireland in January would have been out without a government for three years. That is really quite a long time to have had no politicians, and we've seen a bit of cut through on things like the state of the health service, things like that. But it's really, you know, in, not in a great state. And it would be very good to see if Julian Smith and Boris Johnson pay some attention to this as well. In, in leaving the topic of Ireland and Scotland, just make two final departing points from that, which is that in Ireland, the thing we need to also remember is that the government will benefit now from the fact that it does not have the DUP to, shall we say, contaminate its status and role as an mm. honest broker and yeah. all this. So that's, that's something else yeah. that will probably help, no doubt. At the same time with Scotland, um, coming back to the point of the majority, if you are the leader, it goes without saying, if you're leader of the Conservative Unionist Party who campaigned on a campaign oh. in which you hammered your rival for threatening at the next minute to hold a Scottish referendum, yeah. why would you do that? You know, sort of and, mm. it, until the very last minute, you will you know, resist and resist again. So where do the stories go from here? Well, I think it, it is genuinely a fascinating state of affairs that we've almost uh, sped through the next few months already. We fast forwarded that. We've assumed, OK, Brexit deal goes through without any trouble. Mm. And in the meantime, Labour and Lib Dems, because they have in the middle of trying to let the next leaders, there's a fascinating dynamic adventure there on they will have to decide, do they want, because you can't just go, oh, have a referendum, Remain will be on the ballot paper, woo, that's sort of dividing lines. <laughs> Instead, it's, would I like to rejoin with all the sort of belts and braces EU membership terms that may entail, or do I maybe want a Labour, Lib Dem, Brexit, Norway, soft Brexit deal? So they have to really tackle that in the process. And so meantime, the Tories, yeah, they'll just have to steam through into the free trade agreement talks, and that's where, you know, the old classic of, the ERG don't want an extension. It's in your manifesto, Prime Minister, you don't want an extension. What are you doing? And the EU will say extend it. Does he do it? Well, he's got the authority and the mandate to do it, so he can mm. get away if he needs to have those conversations with his party. Um, and that comes, down, sorry, that comes down very quickly, though, because the, the, the reality mm. is, you know, you're out legally, you're a third country mm. by the 31st. Um, you then start the free trade talks very quickly. You know, the first thing that happens is a bunch of you know, member states say, well, well, obviously we're wanting some fishing quotas before mm. we start the FTA talks. You cave on that. The betrayal narrative starts to, to, to build. The question is, will, will Boris Johnson essentially say, I do actually need a bit of time mm. to na navigate a functional relationship with the European Union and the single market in particular? And I've suddenly got all these business people and everyone saying, you know, that single market thing is actually rather important. Do I just actually need that extension to get it to work? At which point it becomes pay to play for single market access, because ultimately the budget agree agreement that was made as part of the original transition expires December 2020. So I also think, however, that the salience of these issues will plummet 
And it's a mistake for Remainers or soft Brexiteers to think yeah. they can just carry on as it's been in 2019, saying this is the biggest issue facing the country. This is existential. I think a lot of the electorate has just turned around and said, actually, we don't care about the detail. And can we talk about other things now? Mm. Well, one of the questions is when Asa sitting there, Boris Johnson decides to go for an extension. This is entirely hypothetical. Mm. And someone from the ERG texts the Telegraph saying this is unacceptable or whatever. Mm. Does the Telegraph... Yeah, basically splash it as massive climb down by Boris Johnson. How on earth can he be even contemplating this? Or do they just cut in the slack? Well, Brexit commissioning editor. Who are you going to commission? <laughs> well, you get a text well, from Steve Baker. Do you commission him to write a front page uh, <laughs> editorial? Or do you say, bug off, Steve. Got, maybe you're going so to go Your day has gone. Steve was writing in the paper over the weekend. You know, obviously, he's, he's always welcome to write, just as every member of the Conservative Party will be, you know. Oh, you but that's not true. People don't write stuff and you just put it in the paper. Oh, Otherwise, we, you wouldn't be a commissioning editor. You'd just be a, a man who puts things on the page. I'm the post box, in a sense. But, um, no, in genuine earnest seriousness on this look projecting ahead to the scenario if you know Boris Johnson was to then have to turn around and say this obviously we would be covering it in the same terms you know imagine in a similar terms to when October 31st didn't happen with a due awareness of the context in that sense and remembering that for example um in the same breath that you know even I sort of hold my hands and thought, okay, you're not going to get a deal. You're not going to have anything to parade around in a sense. I mean, I didn't necessarily expect Boris Johnson to uh, scrub out one of those red lines, make it a bit wonky and then say, well, hey, look, you know, done the change the backstop to a front stop and all that jazz. So you don't know what, what the Prime Minister might well pull with his advisors that come summer, so he can say it. Um, but granted, it does seem that, you know, maybe the loophole involves that he can then, well, to put it bluntly, Many, many voters will not be listening to assiduous expert podcasts like your own. And so when then Boris Johnson is able to present perhaps a bare bones trade deal, you know, mm. or something by the end of the year, then, you know, we may all stand there and go, it, it's not fully comprehensive. It's not, you know, what, what is this? It's missing points. So they're just here. Boris Johnson has a trade deal. He did it in time. The gloomsters were wrong yet again. Another win. Doesn't that speak to the broader point about this election, I think, yeah. um, which is that, as you say, there's lots of interesting details we need to be looking out for. But the bottom line is, yes. Boris Johnson's really good. Uh, he may be problematic as a person, let's put it that way. But, you know, he got the deal done again by mm. scrubbing out red lines, but he got the deal done. He's just won an 80 seat majority. He understands people's concerns, which is get Brexit done. And that's a good thing in a politician. I mean, we all talk about the drawbacks of Johnson, but the bottom line is uh, he's actually really good at this. I've always had this in the back of my mind for the last couple of years, and certainly since the summer when I knew that, because a, a veteran, Labour veteran, I remember saying to me very clearly when, when back when Boris Johnson was first looking to get back into Parliament and Uxbridge, obviously as a route towards fulfilling his ambition, he said, you've got things to remember about Boris Johnson is his career, his whole life has been defined by the pattern of people saying he can't possibly do that for it by him doing it. Um, and, and that, again, has been borne out. Well, I just think Jill's point is incredibly important that the way he achieves these, these political victories, both with regard to uh, the, the, the deal, the Brexit deal that's done and this concept, slightly flaky concept of a bare bones free trade agreement, um, which is a sort of 
upgrade of managed no deal with the sort of waiting for the EU to sort of waive a few tariffs until you can dot your eyes across the T's. These are terrible arrangements for the UK economy over the next, at least certainly in, in the short to medium term. I mean, he, he achieves a political victory by doing things that are really not good deals in terms of a relationship with the European Union. Now, you might believe that, you know, over a 20, 30 year time horizon, then, you know, that's fine because the phoenix of a buccaneering um, UK oh, well. free trading uh, sort of uh, triumph will rise from the ashes of our, our relationship with the single market and our biggest trade partners. But it, it, the actual, the quality of the arrangements that you get as a result of scoring these political points effectively sort of matters at some level, even if politically it, it, that only makes itself felt in years to come. What happens next with Labour? Um, what's the who's the new leader and and how do they get back in the game? Well, Richard Bergen. Sorry, I just feel that needs to be said. Look, the interesting thing here is uh, just going via the Tories again quickly. Compare what the, the Jeremy Hunt versus Boris Johnson phase of the Tory leadership contest last summer. How did they win that? They had to win them. Well, Boris Johnson won by being Boris Johnson. But what did they have to say to the members of the Conservative Party in order to win that? They had to say things that appealed very specifically to that segment of people, which was all about no deals, fine, it's brilliant, we could do it, what's wrong with no deal? And Jeremy Hunt saying, well, it wouldn't be my preferred outcome, but hey, I've recognised I can't be against no deal now. Now, play that dynamic, the equivalent, in a conversation that the Labour leadership contenders have to have with the current membership of the Labour Party, and their choice is, do you come to bury Jeremy Corbyn or do you praise him? And does it become a race about who is going to be the the anointed carrier of the Corbynite flame, who can say, well, Jeremy got a lot of things right and he was brilliant, but maybe we could sort of tweak it a bit here and there. Or do you say, can we be honest about quite how much of that went catastrophically wrong? How much of it basically sits on the shoulders of the leader we've just had and, you know, and, and those sorts of things. And I think that last category, which would lead to the honest reappraisal of what needs to be done, is such a losing proposition with the kind of a current... I mean, you've got Labour members are sort of, uh, are sort of curled up on the floor in a ball, feeling very sorry for themselves about what's just happened. And you can't do the sort of Liz Kendall thing of coming along with a bucket of salt and throwing on their wounds, going, see, see, we told you, told you this is what would happen. You don't win like that. But then the, the way you do win, unfortunately, probably for Labour Party's prospects for the next few years, is by kind of pretending that things were fine that really aren't fine about the Labour Party. One of the questions is, if you think you know, this government is going to be there guaranteed for four and a half years or whatever, election sort of May, June sometime, whatever, four mm -hmm. and a half years time, then what do you need in a leader? You need, I think, somebody who can perform in Parliament and can take Boris Johnson apart. Because one of the things we know is the Prime Minister, so far, you may get better, he's very inexperienced in some ways, is quite bad at scrutiny. He doesn't react well in Prime Minister's questions. He's not that good as we expect. Mm. He might be yeah. on his feet on the floor of the House. He actually hasn't had that much exposure because the Foreign Secretary, you don't get that much. And he hasn't sort of, you know, had that many opportunities as Prime Minister. He's not decided to take them that much. Um, so I think there is a role there, but there is also the sort of very different role of sort of energising the base and going out. And it's very interesting to see if they sort of managed to find a sort of combination of leader and deputy leader who managed to perform both those roles. I think another just a small thing which might be worth, if you're thinking about how to change the Labour Party, it might be worth learning from the Tories in terms of if you have a leader and it's not working, get rid of him or her pretty efficiently. I mean, there are an awful lot of people. I mean, Ed Miliband ground through those sort of five years where actually a lot of Labour MPs thinking this isn't working, they were picking up on the doorstep, this man is never going to be Prime Minister. 
but that sort of the cult of loyalty kicked in. You know, Jeremy Corbyn lost an election in 2017. I know there are a lot of Labour mm. people who think they won that election, but actually he didn't become Prime Minister. Theresa May did. You know, if you're in a situation where you compare to when Ian Duncan Smith became mm. leader of the Conservative Party, um, uh, again, the membership mm. really supported that proposition, but the party just went, this is never going to work. <laughs> and we're not going to give you a choice next time round. Uh, you know, and and you know, likewise, putting Boris Johnson mm. in instead of Theresa May, rightly or wrongly, you know, we can, I agree with they said that you can sort of, uh, that Theresa May actually probably got a bit of bad press on that but the reality is there are an awful lot of people who voted for Boris Johnson who wouldn't vote for Theresa May. And they could take a lesson from the uh, from the parties in Australia and New Zealand which sort of spilled their prime ministers on a sort of almost daily basis. <laughs> um, I just want to pick up a couple of things there. One, if you like Australian prime ministers there's a very good podcast called A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard which is also produced by the Policy Institute and by me which you should all listen to uh, and are we all agree that 80 is a landslide? Are we, are we all happy with that? That's a landslide. Yeah, by comparative term, yeah. I think I, you know, since, since, we, since we thought that actually the era of majorities was more or less over, I mean, hmm. we've you know, sort of written lots about actually will we ever see uh, big numbers again? We've had 2010, 2015, 2017. I think in those terms, it is a very safe majority. He's not going to lose it over the course of the parliament by a few by-elections. There'd be something very dramatic to happen to manage to lose that. So he's safely installed. He will repeal the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. I think that was one mm. of the few points on which the Conservative Labour manifestos agreed. Not quite sure how they do that. It's technically quite difficult, but they will get rid of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. He'll have the discretion to call the next election at a time of his choosing. So I think he, for those purposes, it, yeah. And the other thing is, he has changed the Conservative Party as well. I mean, it's different people elect for different places, but it's also very different people. So those serial rebels that mm. Theresa May had to put up with and that he had, the Gorkwood Scott and things, they've all gone. Mm. So this is now a much more disciplined Conservative Party. All of those people think they owe their political future to him. So he is in command of his party for at least the next two or three years, you know, so. And with mention of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, I'll just point out, this is why Jill, people at UK Changing Europe are proper experts, because she says it's going to be an election in four and a half years, which is right. Everyone's gone on about five years. There's not going to be an election in five years, is it? It's going to be four and a half. It's been driving me nuts all weekend. People go, well, five years. It's not going to be five years. It's obviously going to be four and a half. Hi, Arnon here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk, and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. I think Christmas had a big part to play in it. There's a lot to get done at Christmas. Get Brexit done feels like, uh, oh, I can tick that one off my list of Christmas. When I was out over the weekend, it just felt like people were happier. Like, that's the election out of the way. We can go and get our Christmas trees. Yeah. And, you know, there's a whole long list of things to do for Christmas. I mean, and that one is off the list of get Brexit done, just fed into that. That terrible. If it was going on for the weekend, are the DUP coming back? No, they're completely now, you know, sort of without power they're not kingmakers what about the Lib Dems no none of that instead we just move on I mean obviously for wonks like this it would have been amazing but you know um, okay listen let's finish with uh, recommendations as we always do Jill have you got yet another recommendation for understanding the election that's just been or the Brexit that is now definitely coming this is going to sound very political but it's not Um, so to understand Boris Johnson I'm going to recommend Richard III by Shakespeare 
uh, which been. basically is my favourite play because it is the best play about politics uh, that's been written because it shows actually how a completely shameless, manipulative but extraordinarily charismatic leader uh, stops at nothing to come to power. What Boris Johnson obviously will be hoping that in part two of his premiership, now it starts now, <laughs> that uh, basically all the sort of ghosts of everybody he's slayed before in order to get there don't come back to haunt him. Very good. Ada, you're back. Well, it, very much non-sci-fi this. Uh, in my impartial and completely unbiased opinion, very good book out called The Manifesto. Oh, here we go. That looks at all lessons about modern politics <laughs> from classical era stuff. And, you know, from Boudicca, which teaches us about Brexit, to what we can learn about Hadrian's Wall for Trump and his wall. And I think it's written by, oh, me. Yes, yeah, the best I, author. There is a sort of rule that you're not supposed to recommend your own stuff. But since you are back on and you did recommend Star Wars last time, which... I use in every email to guests going, look, you can go this extreme if you want. Exactly. Go for Star Wars. Uh, I'll let it off. Let you off for that. Um, uh, Raphael, what have you got? In terms of understanding Brexit, I strongly recommend rewatching the original 1969 The Italian Job because when you watch that film, what you feel very, very strongly is the cultural insecurity of a country that is still just immediately kind of post collapse of empire and feeling very proud and very wounded. And it's about going over to the continent and sticking it to those uppity continentals. And, and there was a, a kind of a discreet, chippy insecurity about the way continental Europe is expressed in that, which really well anticipated a lot of what would then become the seeds of British Euroscepticism, which is the sense that we won the war and then we somehow lost the peace. And these countries, the Italians, the Germans, the French, they suddenly got all this Marshall Plan money, they're doing absolutely fine. They started to outgrow us. We had to enter the European Union at the moment of sort of shame and embarrassment that we couldn't, we'd lost empire, we couldn't keep up. And that was a depth charge. Those were the seeds that were planted into the soil of resentment that then flowered into British Euroscepticism and ultimately expressed itself. And then we end up on a cliff edge. Well, absolutely. So Brexit is the truck going off uh, off the edge, right? And who says, I've got an idea? Is that Boris or is that Dominic Cummings? Who, who says... Well, and also, let's not forget that the great, the great line about, you know, was it said of... of um, you know, the you weren't supposed to blow the bloody doors off. But the whole point of <laughs> yes. having the referendum hmm. was just meant to sort of teach oh. David Cameron oh. the lesson. You weren't supposed; they weren't supposed to win. Oh, what a recommendation to finish with! Mm. And since it's Christmas, yeah, I mean that's a good one. Just because it's a really good film, that's why you should seek it out. So there you go. You can act on those recommendations very easily over Christmas. You can ask for Aza's book in your Christmas stocking. The Italian job is bound to be on telly over the next couple of weeks, I would have thought. And as for Rich Third, um, I don't know, it's a bit more highbrow. I don't know. Go to the theatre. Do people do that at Christmas? I mean, go to the panto. I don't think that'll teach you anything about Brexit. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure you can find uh, Richard Third might be on the telly, eh? Some sort of, does Lawrence Olivier, did he make another Richard III? Probably. And the competition is related to the recommendations as well. This was, as was mentioned, Aza's second time as a guest on the podcast. The first man, uh, first person ever to be invited back. And my question for the competition this edition is, what did he recommend the first time he was on? It's about this time last year. I can't remember if it was the start of this year or the end of last year. Uh, but it's roughly a year ago, and you can uh, find that in the UK to Changing Europe podcast archives. Listen back to it. Send in your answer to 
UK and EU at kcl.ac.uk or contact uh, the team through Twitter, which is at UK and EU, or you can uh, send a tweet to me, I suppose. I am at Political Yeti. And my website is james-miller.com and you will find all the recommendations there. Nearly all the recommendations. It needs a bit of updating, but, you know, uh, we're nearly at the Christmas break, so I will do so over the Christmas break and by the end of the year it will be lovely and shiny and up to date. So, yeah, um, in fact, you could go there and cheat, couldn't you? I've just realised you could go there and find out what Aza recommended. Oh, well, uh, whatever works, just find the answer, send it in, get a mug. The music this edition has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra and this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and Changing Europe uh, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thanks for listening this year. It's been uh, quite the year in Brexit. Come back next year for more podcasts and in the meantime have a happy and peaceful Christmas and festive season. Thank you. Goodbye.